0: Okay, so last week we started a, a new foundation, the Refining Fire Foundation series. Hopefully this will give you a good foundation for the rest of your Christian life, and those who are listening through the video, the same with them. And uh, last week we talked about, uh, I started basically a, a foundation that comprised of two different doctrines. you remember what those doctrines are? Of and doctrine of man a doctrine of my god that was supposed brother Kevin that was the first foundation and doctrine of sin okay how uh, they're connected together very closely and do you remember the technical terms for these two doctrines what's the technical term for the doctrine of man it's a Greek word anthropology that's right and for the doctrine of sin Comes from the Greek word hamartia for sin, hamartiology. Okay, hamartiology. So these things are, to, are together, and then we talked about um, <clears throat> what it means to be made in God's image. What are some things it doesn't mean to be made in God's image? <clears throat> right, we're not omnipotent or omniscient. We're not omnipresent like He is. That's right. Okay, can we can still get sick, and He doesn't. Okay, yep. Yeah. So, wait, Jenna? That's right. Does God have a physical body according to scripture? He's got a spirit. And we must worship him in spirit and truth. Um, can God sin? God the Father. Can he sin? No, he cannot. So, it doesn't mean uh, they're made his image in that sense either. Because we from the beginning, starting with Adam and Eve, have had the ability to sin. Or not. Okay? When he doesn't have that ability. Um, so what, what does it mean to be made in God's image? What are some things it does mean? Okay. Creativity and emotions, okay. You, I mean, you can kind of think that, you can kind of say that, uh, animals have emotions to some degree, I guess you could say. If you know, if you've taught your dog not to get to something, you get in the house and he's all over the place, he kind of will put his ears down or she, and he'll go crawl in the corner. That's, that's been taught, but it still has, you know, it can yelp and it, it might, it might, uh, you know, mourn if you take his puppies away from it or, you know, take his boyfriend away from it. It might mourn for a while. <laughs> um, you know, that can happen. So, but not the same way we do. What, what's some other things that are, that make us, uh, that, that, w- what it means to be made in God's life? What else does it mean? Cause we have creative so far. What else? Do animals think logically? So we have logic and reason. Okay. What else? Yeah, they have smaller brains than us. That doesn't really mean much, though. I mean, that's true, Malachi. But we're talking about being made in God's image, okay? God doesn't have a physical brain. Okay. So. Yes. Yes. You know? So we have morality and conscience, and the animals do not. <clears throat> the animals, I don't think they've always killed. Uh You read in Genesis chapter 1, he says, God says, Adam, I've given you all the herbs of the field to eat. and it, Just like I gave the animals the same thing, and then in Genesis 9, it changes. Um, so I think there's an implication there that the animals were eating vegetable things as well before the flood. What about uh dignity for life? You, know, you don't have animal funerals, but, you know, I guess some people were saying elephants have funerals, but um, I think it's a little bit different. But anyway, uh there's a little bit of difference there as far as dignity for life. Um, what about recognizing beauty? I mean, the last time you saw an animal stand up and look at the sky and just look at how beautiful the sky is or look at a flower and how beautiful a flower is or, you know, build a microscope or a telescope so they can see even more of the beauty of God's creation. Animals don't do those kind of things. We also have eternity written upon our hearts and we have a sense of justice. And so... We talked about what the being made in the image of God is and what it isn't, and are we still made in God's image today? Yes. And so we have scriptures in the Old Testament after the fall of Adam. We have scriptures after the flood. We have scriptures in the New Testament that all say that we're still made in God's image.? Okay, But as defining what that means properly, you come up with the right uh, ideas concerning this. Right. If you have the idea that made in God's image means that you are completely holy. If that's what it means, then of course I would agree that man has lost God's image. But the problem with that is, the Bible still says man does have God's image. So that couldn't possibly be the definition of being made in God's image. But people often, of course, they, failing to engage in proper hermeneutics, they'll take extra biblical definitions and apply them on Bible terms. Okay, So we have to define Bible terms from the Bible. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the fall of mankind. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to talk about what happened there. We talked a little bit about it last week, uh, what didn't happen. We didn't lose God's image. okay. Um, and we've talked, you know, we went through the series of uh, good hermeneutics, talked a little about sinful nature and original sin. <clears throat> Most people say that when Adam sinned in the garden... Now, who was the first one to sin there? It was Eve, it was Eve okay. But when Adam sinned in the garden... People will say that, uh, you know, because of that, we no longer have free will. They'll say because of that, all of us, all of Adam's posterity, all of his descendants, that's all of us, we're all from Adam, we're all related in some way. In case you didn't know, you're, you're probably married to a distant cousin somehow. Um, but, uh, you know, so we, we all, they'll say that we all were born sinners, and then we're all born with a sinful nature. So as we read through this account in Genesis I want you to tell me if you're seeing that at all. If you see any uh, explicit or even implicit verse that it hints at we're born sinners now, or that was some kind of punishment for Adam's sin or for Eve's sin. And, uh, you know, this is one of the ways they get around Jesus being born a sinner. They'll say, well, uh, we, we're descendants of Adam. And because Adam sins, you know, and there was no male involved in Jesus' virgin birth, therefore Jesus wasn't born a sinner and we are. But going back to the point I made a second ago, who was the first person who sinned? Eve. So why wouldn't women have a trace of sin within their their eggs that they're, they're donating to the child being born? They should have it as well. Eve was the first one to sin. The Bible makes that clear many times. Not just in Genesis, but later on. When it talks about authority structure, it talks about Eve sinning first. And that's one of the reasons why there is this authority structure. In fact, that was one of Eve's punishments. We'll see here in a minute. Okay, so let's read Genesis 2. Verses sixteen and seventeen. And the Lord commanded the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in a day you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so one thing we have to deal with in, in this teaching today is what does it mean to die? What is it what does death mean here? And and really a literal translation here from the Greek or from the Hebrew. This isn't a literal translation of that. Really what it would say is uh dying you shall die. Okay, that's what it's literally saying there. Okay, there's actually two words for death there in the Hebrew and in the Greek Old Testament Septuagint. Okay, so dying you shall die. Dying is referring to what will happen that day and you shall die, which is in the future tense, is referring to what will happen later on. Okay? So we have it says here in the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. There would be a literal translation there. So in the day you eat of it. Now, there are some people who would try to uh, propose that the word day here means a thousand years. Because there are scriptures that say to the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And that's fine. We can take sometimes where the Hebrew word yom is mentioned. We talked about this in Genesis 1. Remember, the Hebrew word yom can mean more than a literal 24-hour day. When there are modifiers, it has to mean a literal 24-hour day. Now, I don't see morning or evening here. I don't see a numeral there. So, And this is one of those cases where it could possibly mean that. But here's the problem. Remember, if the literal sense makes perfect sense, take no other sense lest you make nonsense. So Mr. Literal is driving the van. Okay, so if we're going to take an allegorical approach to the word day here—that it means more than a literal 24-hour day, it means a thousand years—there has to be something within the text itself that's going to force that upon it. Otherwise, we're, we should be taking the literal meaning of a literal 24-hour day. Otherwise, it's just every time you see the word day in the Bible, it's left up to your subjective interpretation every time. That's not the way God's word works. It's saying something, and it means something. So do you, let's let's read it through one more time. Tell me if you see anything within these two verses, and when we read to the results later on, that would lead you to believe that day here means a thousand years or a different period of time. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in a day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now we're going to go to other verses as well. Is there anything within these two verses that would make you believe that day here means anything other than a literal 24-hour day? anything. There's two things tied to day here. Two things. You eat of it, and dying you shall die. So there's two things tied to day here. Now day means, let's just say it means a thousand years. Let's say day means a thousand years. If it means a thousand years, you eat of it has to be tied to that. Grammatically. So you'd have to be eating with those thousand years, for those thousand years, for that to mean a thousand years there. Not only that, but the dying has to relate to the thousand years. Now, some people would say, well, okay, dying here could relate to the thousand years because Adam died before his thousand years were up. He lived to be, let's see, 935 years, I think. Let's see, 130 years plus 830, yes, 900, 930 years, yes. So it nine do 930 years. So that, that would kind of make sense, but what about the eating of it part? Did Adam eat one time? As we see here in a second from the the tree of knowledge of good did he eat for a thousand years? He ate of it one time. So I think this, these verses, they force us to, to, to interpret day, even if we do give the people who want to I mean a thousand years the benefit of the doubt, we have to allow day to be interpreted by the verse itself. Besides the fact that we should let it be a 24-hour day unless the verse forces it. The verse itself is forcing a 24-hour day, isn't it? Isn't that what it's doing? Okay, so, so the day you eat it, dying you shall die. So there's two different words used for dying here. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the Greek words. I'm better with Greek than I am with Hebrew, okay? And we have a Greek Old Testament. And there's two different words being used here in the Greek for, for, for death, okay? One is thanatos. And thanatos can mean physical death, or it can mean transcendent death, spiritual, eternal death. Okay, And then we have apothnesko. Apothnesko. It says it means to cease to have vital functions, whether at an earthly or transcendent level. So both of them can mean physical death, and both of them can mean spiritual or eternal death. So both of them can go either way. But I think the tenses of the words can help us understand what happened. Because the day he eats of it, dying you shall die. Did Adam physically die that day? Mm -hmm. No, we just saw that. He lived to be 930 years old. So the part where it says dying, that's talking about that day, that can't be referring to physical death, can it? But you shall die in the future. Can that be referring to physical death? Because doesn't he die in the future? Yeah, so that can be referring to physical death. Okay, So I think the proper way of interpreting this verse is dying spiritually, you shall die physically. Okay, There's two punishments being divvied out to him. And in fact, there's even more punishments than that we'll see in a minute. Because God didn't give him all the punishments, did he? Right here in this verse. Other things happened to the, the male and the female and the serpent because of Adam's sin and because of Eve's sin. Besides what God said here. So he's just giving them two things that's going to happen. Now, when we talked about Ephesians 2 a few teachings ago, remember we talked about what death means there? You are dead in trespasses and sins. What parable did I go to to talk about that? Remember? It was the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that? Now, in that parable, we saw the, the father said two separate times, my son was dead and is alive again. And in that, we interpreted death not to mean physical death, because that in that story, the the man rise from the dead? Okay, no. He was separated from his father due to what? Due to his sin. Yeah, it's relational death. His, his sin separated him from his father because his sin sent him out, from his father's protection, from his father's household, out into the world to be a sinner. And to waste the money his father gave him on sin. But when he realized he was in the muck and mire of the pig, you know, the pig slop, he came to his senses and he said, I'll just go back and maybe he'll let him be a servant. And that's when the Father said those things. And we know that John seventeen three says, This is eternal life, knowing God the Father, and the one he has sent. So having a relationship that knowing, not knowing about, but knowing God the Father and Jesus is eternal life is spiritual life, and we know that the scriptures make it very clear that uh, sin separates you from God in relation to him. You have scriptures like Isaiah 59, 2, and so on and so forth. 1 uh, John 1, 5 through 7, talks about fellowship, right? This is the message we heard from him, talking about Jesus, and we declare unto you that God is light and him, has no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship, there's a relationship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses from all sin. And so we know that fellowship, which is a requirement of having fellowship with God and with other Christians, is that we're walking in the light, as he's in the light. Okay? So but sin denies that fellowship. Sin breaks that fellowship. Some people who don't know the scriptures very well, they'll say, Well, sin doesn't, doesn't make you lose your salvation, it just costs you your fellowship with God. But according to John seventeen three, isn't eternal life fellowship with God? So doesn't it cost you your salvation then? Yeah, so we have to be uh we have to make sure we're understanding these things properly and not imposing our own definition of anything upon the word. Okay? So let's look at let's look at uh we looked at uh Genesis two, sixteen and seven. Let's look at what happened in the fall of mankind here, okay? Um, sure, go ahead. I think that something had to have happened that day. As far as, because that's a, the that's a day that he ate of it, okay? And the day he ate of it, some kind of death had to have happened that day. Not just started, not just started, but had to have happened that day. And I, I think there's a reason why, I mean, there's two different words for death being used here, even though they both can go either direction. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, there's two different words being used here. So, I think there's some kind of distinguishing factor being made here. And on top of all that, we know. And I just gave you First John one and Isaiah and nine. And there's other verses too we can go through, that uh or James one fifteen. But sin, when its full birth brings forth death, you know. So sin brings forth some kind of death immediately. Okay, so we know that from other scriptures. So interpreting scripture with scripture, I think we must conclude some kind of death happened that day because of sin. Oh yeah,
1: I agree with that.
0: Yeah. Part. So, I mean, I agree the death process may have started at that point in time. Um, I, 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 let me take that back. I don't think death happened directly as a result of sin. We'll see why it ha- physical death, why it happened here in a second. But I don't think it's a direct result of sin, as if your sinning changes your DNA and makes you start to die or something like that. I don't think that's the way it works. Um, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think that's the way it works. Okay, So let's read in Genesis 3 and see what happened here with the temptation of Eve. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? See, he starts out with kind of a funny question here. Here he knows the answer to that, doesn't he? And he knows that she can eat of some trees of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the, tree of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Did God say you couldn't touch it? So She's going above and beyond what God said. She's putting, she's, that's legalism right there. It is. That's true legalism. She's putting more upon herself than God did. And He said if she does it, she's gonna die. That, that's, that's what legalism is. It's saying that something that you do, that God never said, is going to kill you. Spiritually. Yes, brother? I it, it, like well, I mean, that would be, we, we could think that, but it's, that's arguing from silence. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but it's, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a nice theory. I mean, it's possible that he said that, but I don't think he did. I don't think he did. I mean, this guy is, he's pre-programmed from God, so he's a pretty smart guy. I thought he would have done something stupid like that. But, uh, he, he could have. He had a true will. So she, uh, she went above and beyond what God actually said, and then the verse swore, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. One of the first lies of the devil. And if anyone ever tells you, that sin won't kill you, they're just like Satan. Just like him. Once they've always saved, you know who the author of that is? Satan. That's who the author of that is. This is the first time he, he proposed this that doctrine right here. You will not surely die. And those who say you can sin every day and thought were indeed and be okay with God, that's from the devil too. Same thing. You will not surely die. Only if you practice sin you'll die. Right? I had a guy tell me recently, he said, uh, we're sinners and saints at the same time. I said, well, how is that possible? And uh, he said, well, we're, we're not supposed to practice sin or do it as a lifestyle, or something to that effect. And I was like, well, if you're doing it every day, how is it not practicing it? If I played basketball every day, wouldn't you say I'm practicing it? If I played football every day, wouldn't you say I'm practicing it? If I'm sitting every day, wouldn't you say I'm practicing it? And wouldn't you say I'm doing it as a lifestyle? I mean, how much, how much more can you do it besides every day? You know? So, but anyway, so, see, uh, he says you will not surely die, and then, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, is that true? Well, actually it is true. They will know God and evil. They will know good and evil. And they won't be like God, they won't be deity. Now, he may be trying to put, plant a seed of pride there, because she'll, he'll want, she wants to be like God in that sense, but, she will be like God in one sense. She will know good and evil. I mean, God says it later on at the end of this chapter. We'll see it here in a second. So he's telling the truth there. So what he's doing here is he's trying to say to her, God is withholding something from you. He's saying God is unjust. Is basically what the Satan's saying here. Now is God unjust? What if we don't understand something? You know, the whole old saying that, why do bad things happen to good people? That old saying. First of all, there are no good people as a whole because we've all sinned against God. Secondly, uh, just because we don't understand something and why it's happening does not mean that God is not just in allowing it to happen or causing it to happen, is it? For all we know, maybe God was going to let them eat of that tree later on. It just right then they weren't ready for it. The scriptures don't tell us why he said that. But the fact is, when God tells you something, you better do it, whether you understand it or not. You know if it's according to Scripture and He's telling you to do it, you need to do it, whether you understand it or not. We may not understand everything that happens in life, thus. But the fact is, God can use it for His glory and use it for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Okay. Okay, so that is true. That they, they, your eyes will be open, she'll see, she'll know good and evil. Verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now these three things here. This is 1 John 2.16 in practice. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Saw that tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. Desire to make one wise, the pride of life. That's it right there in a nutshell. First person to engage in that. That's what First John 2.16 talks about. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, love the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. Okay? And you see her husband is right there with her. I mean, it seems like it doesn't say. he was. It says she also gave to her husband with her. And he ate. And so it seems like her husband was sitting there silently as a, as a bystander and saying nothing about it. Now, it doesn't say that specifically here. I'm assuming that because of the language here. Uh But either way, shouldn't he have told her no? Shouldn't he have said, even if he stumbled upon her after she'd already eaten it? Shouldn't he have said, no, I'm not eating that. Yes. And... Um, in doing so he he transgressed God's law as well now listen to the results of it in verse seven then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings and the word coverings there means a skirt okay like a, I, I'm, I'm picturing like a mini skirt okay uh, they made themselves covering we'll see later on God gave them proper clothing but you see what happened their eyes were open and I think this happens to every child at some point in time. OK, uh, younger children, they don't mind running around the house with no clothes on, do they? Now, their parents may tell them not to do that, but if you just let them go free, they would just do it and not care one bit. But every child comes to this point where they say, well, I'm they realize they're naked and they're ashamed of it and they want to cover themselves up and they want to go in their bedroom and they don't want anyone seeing them naked any longer. And that, I think, is a picture of the age of accountability or the state of accountability. You know, they become their eyes are opened to see these things. Now, I, I'm I'm assuming God would eventually open Adam and Eve's eyes anyway. But now, because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened immediately. Okay. Now we don't know how far along they were when this happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. It was somewhere between then and uh, before they had Cain and Abel. Now. The, we don't know when they had Cain and Abel. We know that they had Seth when Adam was 130 years old. So if we assume that Seth was born when Cain and Abel were around 25, let's say I mean, Abel was killed, but let's say they were been around 25. So we have 105 years, because Cain and Abel were born outside of the garden, 105 years possibly to give them an idea of when they would have done it, somewhere before that period of time. Okay? So we don't know how old Adam and Eve were, how long, how far along they were, uh, how far past day six or day seven they were, but somewhere between them. So their eyes were opened. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, this is verse eight, in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to, gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, who is this? What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so we see there's shame for their nakedness. There's trying to cover up their nakedness or cover up their sin. Okay. And, um, there's a, a a fear of God, they're hiding from God now, when they didn't hide from Him before, and we know that fear has to do with judgment, and judgment has to do with sin. So they feel guilt and shame now. Before then, they had no sin. The only commandment God gave them, they were keeping it. They were keeping it for who knows how long. Okay? And then there's a passive blame. Adam tries to blame it on Eve, he tries to blame on the serpent. A passive blame there. Okay? Now, let's see what happens. Let's see what the punishers are, starting in verse sixteen, for what what happened here. To the woman, God said, "I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." So we have several things here. To, to the woman, there's sorrow in her conception. There's pain and childbirth, and her husband will rule over her. So sin affected a lot of things for her. Before then, they were probably equals in that sense when it came to authority. And she, she hadn't given birth to any children yet, but if she had, it wouldn't have been painful. Can you imagine that? You know, no, none of that uh, fake stuff, Pitocin. Maybe God has some real Pitocin in her, her veins that was causing the pain not to, not to be there. Wouldn't that be great, woman, if you didn't have to have uh, some kind of pain? Interesting, I saw one of my friends, they post something on Facebook recently about uh, these two guys, two husbands, who it's a video, and they're, they're, they said, "Well, our wives are always telling us how painful childbirth is." And he said uh, they said, well, they, they keep telling us us men couldn't handle it, okay they said, "Well we believe that women are always constantly exaggerating about things. And so we came to this doctor's office today. And they're gonna hook us up to these machines and put it around our stomach and they're gonna help us to feel what it feels like for a woman as she having contractions and when she's in labor. And so they start out really low and they have really low pain, like, oh yeah, that was and then they then they say, Well, now we're gonna have to start the labor pains. Oh, that wasn't labor pains, and so they're gonna start labor pains now. So they start real low and they start moving up. These guys are cranking up in pain or doing all kinds of different positions, like a woman whatever she's giving birth and and uh, at the end they're crying and it's just and they 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 actually went through the whole thing, and they 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 put the pain on their their abdomen area, what they what women feel like when they're going through labor, as far as their contractions. So, they got a taste of the what the woman would go through. And I you know I thank God every time my wife gives birth that I'm not a woman, that I'm a man. You know I I, I don't want to have to go through that. I, I would I would never doubt the pain she's going through because the way she responds, even though sometimes she can be a little exaggeratory with her pain, um, I don't think she's exaggerating those times. Yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. You've gotten a lot better on that. But, uh, you know, I, I definitely don't think she's exaggerating when she's she's giving birth because she does a lot of things that she would never do otherwise. Uh, hey, I I was pretty good last time. Yeah, you were pretty good last time. Yes, I agree with that. And so we see these things that a woman was given. Now, these things weren't mentioned at the beginning as punishments to Eve. Now, we, the first time Adam mentioned the punishments for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was only to Adam. Eve was not even around yet. So... Either God told Eve later on, or Adam told Eve, one or the other. But these things were not mentioned before. Let's look at the punishments of Adam. Then Adam, he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I command you, saying, You shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... For the dust you are, to dust you shall return. And so you see several things here. The ground is cursed now. And Romans 8 talks about this in greater detail and talks about how the all of creation is crying out for the 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 revealing of the children of the children of God so they can be go back to the way it's supposed to be and have the new heavens and new earth. So the the ground is cursed, it bring forth thorns and thistles. Imagine being able to go out into the field and not have to worry about thorns and thistles. Wouldn't that be great? And the ground isn't cursed. And you're not toiling and sweating to make it bring forth food for yourself and for your family. It's just there and you're just taking care of it. It's like a little garden that God planted. Not us planting it, but God planted it. The best gardener there ever was plants the garden. You just take care of it and eat of it. That'd be great. But not anymore, not for him. And of course the last punishment is for the dust for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So so far, anything in here? Do you see anything mentioned about uh, Adam and Eve or their descendants losing free will? You see anything about Adam and Eve and their descendants uh, gaining a sinful nature? Or about Adam and descendants being born sinners? See, you'd think people think this is such a popular message. It's such an important message. A, I mean, people will call you a heretic if you don't believe in it. It's just an integral part of the God. Let's say you believe in the gospel if you don't believe in this. It's just an integral part of the gospel and the message of the Bible and it's essential doctrine, wouldn't it be right here in the beginning? Wouldn't God have told them? I mean, he told them all the other punishments. Why wouldn't he have articulated that to them as well? But he doesn't. So let's read on. Let's see what else happened here. And Adam called his wife named Eve, which means life or living, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics, which is like a full garment now. That's what that means. Full garment now. As opposed to the little skirts they had before. Okay? A full garment. So God's fully clothing them. And what did he have to do to get a tunic of skin? He had to kill an animal. That's a picture of what? Christ's sacrifice. See, one of the first pictures of Christ's sacrifice, right here at the beginning. And this this animal, this poor animal, had to die because of their sin. If they hadn't sinned, the animal wouldn't have to have died. And so we see the shed blood of Christ. And we, I, I skipped over verse 15. We see when he's talking to the serpent here, at the end of verse 15, he says, oh, let's start at the beginning first. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed is singular there, so we're talking about Jesus now. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the prophecy about Jesus at the very beginning as well. And then we see a picture of Jesus when they slaughtered uh, the, the animal. Blood was shed and it covered up their sin because they saw their shame. They saw they were naked, so it covered them up. And it says in verse uh, 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. See, that's what Satan was saying. So that they become like God in that sense. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent, sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove him out, drove out the man and placed, he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. you think Adam ever attempted to get to that tree? With a big angel there with a flaming sword? I don't think so. I don't think he ever attempted it. But we see here, I I think we see physical death here. I mean, God God said in verse 19 what will happen, he'll return to dust. And I think verse 20 20 through 24, we see what God does, the measures God takes to ensure that that Adam will die physically now. Because there is still one loophole. If Adam would have taken from the tree of life and eaten of it, he would have lived forever. Yes. So, we see here that um, I think spiritual death comes, the dying comes, from their sin. Okay, that's the dying. You shall die, future tense, comes from them being taken out of the garden, not having access to the tree of life any longer, and eventually, now, they will die. Okay? So that's what we see here in the garden. Okay, let's look at Genesis 4, and we'll look through 1 through 12 here to see if free will is alive and well with Adam and Eve's children. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their, and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now we don't know why uh, God didn't respect Cain's offering. Maybe it was because it was fruit and God was looking for blood, right, as this offering. Okay, or maybe it was that he didn't bring the best fruit. Doesn't say he brought the best fruit. What it says about Abel. Of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, the best, the best quality there. And so it's one of those two things, I believe. And in verse uh so Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Who should have Cain been angry with? You have three options here his brother Abel, God or himself. Yeah, he should have been angry with himself. To be angry with God is to call God unjust. As if his standards are too hard to meet. To be angry with his brothers if to say, Well, he was righteous and I wasn't, therefore I'm gonna be angry with him. Just like sinners getting us for preaching the gospel or telling them the truth. Really, they're angry with God and taking out the messenger. Okay, so verse seven. If you God's speaking to, to Cain now, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. That's a perfect picture of temptation and giving into it. It lies at the door. Knock, knock, knock. Will you let it in? Or will you rule over it? Will you let it rule over you? Or will you rule over it? That's the question. So, and it's just God talking to Cain here. So, obviously, God still thinks Cain has the ability to rule over it. So, obviously to me, uh he believes that uh Cain still has free will. Okay, so this free will is still alive and well. But if anyone's born a sinner with a sinful nature, surely it would be the direct descendant of Adam and Eve. But we don't see that, do we? We don't see that. And we see how Cain. We know how Cain responded. He got angry with his brother, took him to the field, killed him. And then we see in verse uh, nine, the Lord got, said to Cain, "Where is Abel your brother?" He said, "I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper?" Kind of being sarcastic, it seems like with God. He doesn't have much respect for God there. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And he, he, then he curses his Cain. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. And so we see here that if we look at the beginning, just what happened, what kind of death it was, what Adam and Eve did, what their re- repercussions were, what happened to their children, the whole idea they were born sinners sin into the sinful nature because of this situation is not true. Is not founded upon the scriptures, okay? And, but as a little side note here, I want to point out a couple of things here. We see in verse 9 of Genesis 3, God called to Adam and said, where are you? Now, is that a legitimate question from God, like God doesn't know where Adam is? Okay, yeah, I agree with that. Now here, here's the problem. People who are open theists, they'll go to certain texts of the Bible, and they'll say, well, If that's a legitimate question from God, like when he tested Abraham to see what was in his heart, if that's legitimate from God, then God couldn't possibly know the future free will decisions of man. So they're taking those scriptures very literally and saying, well, God didn't know what was in Abraham's heart. Okay, Or God didn't know that Nineveh would really repent. So that's why he repented of destroying them. Um, that God didn't know that Hezekiah would cry out to him and say, can you let me live longer? And then God would let him live longer. Okay? They'll take texts like that and they'll take them very literally. Now my question for an open theist would be, why aren't you taking this one literally too? And their response would be this, well, because God knows everything presently. And my response to to not taking those other texts literally would be because God knows everything in the future. I have other texts to point to, other scriptures to point to, to prove that God knows the future free will decisions of man. And so using the whole counsel of Scripture, we know that God is not saying, like he's playing hide and seek with Adam and Eve. Like He doesn't know where they are. And then he says, um, in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Now does he know the answer to that question? Yes. And he said, have you eaten from the tree which I command you that you should not eat? Does he know the answer to that question? Yeah. So that's all present stuff. And you go to Genesis 4. He's talking to Cain. He says, um, "Where is Abel, your brother?" What well, does God know that? Yes, He knows that. <laughs> what have you done? Does He know that? Yeah. So these aren't these aren't legitimate. This is God dealing with human beings. I mean, there may be times when my children do something wrong, and I already know it, and I may still answer the asking the question just to get it out of them, to see if they're going to admit to the truth, right? Even though I already know the truth. I want them to admit to the truth. But I already know the truth before the, I even ask them. Maybe I was looking out the window. and They didn't know I was looking out the window because the light outside is lighter than it is inside. And they can't see me looking out the window and I see them doing it. I see maybe, uh, you know, Emily hitting Carrie over the head with a stick or something like that. <laughs> you yeah, know, I don't think she... You wouldn't really do that, would you, Emily? Yeah, okay, sure. But um, <laughs> uh, if I saw her do that, i say... Emily, what would you do to your sister? Why is she crying? I don't know. Oh, really? You don't know? Okay. Okay. Well, I just saw you do this. Oh. Do you want to admit to it now? Yes. <laughs> you know, so if she would have told the truth, her, her, her discipline would have been less harsh. But now that she's lying to me, too, her discipline will be harder than it would have been otherwise. Okay? And so it doesn't mean that God didn't know those things. Okay, let's go to Romans 5. Romans five, chapter five and verse twelve. Okay, so we saw in, in Genesis and the account there that they died that day because of eating of the tree, and the day wasn't a thousand years, and then eventually they would die because they kept out of the Garden of Eden and didn't have access to the tree of life. In Romans five, now remember I want to m- help you remember this. 2 Peter 3.16 says that Paul's writings sometimes are hard to understand, and unstable people twist into their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. Okay, So let's look at Romans 5. Let's start in verse 6 here. I want you to get the context. we we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. For when you're still without strength, in due time or at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So what he's saying here so far is that we didn't deserve Christ's death, that Christ died for us when we didn't deserve it, and he didn't die for righteous people or good people, he died for sinners, his enemies. (laughs) Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we we shall be, that's future now, shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we shall we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, so that's the context there so far. Talking about reconciliation, justification, being a future salvation as well. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Let's stop right there. I'm missing three words there, huh? That's where a lot of people will stop when they're quoting Romans 5.12. If they quote just that part, you might come to the conclusion that the reason why death spread to all men was because of who? Adam. Let's let's read it through, and let's get the last three words in here this time. Okay. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, why did death spread to all men? Because all sinned. What happened when Adam sinned? Death, sin entered the world, and death through sin. So death entered the world, and sin entered the world. Now what people will do, they'll read into that and say, well, sin entered every single person. Is that what it means by cosmos there? No, I think it means that the human experience, because remember, Satan had sinned by now. Okay, so we're talking about the world as far as the whole universe um, Satan had already sinned, but entering the cosmos, the, the world as we knew it, as human beings, sin had now entered through Adam. And through that, death had entered. Now we have to deal with this death issue again. Which death is this talking about here? Okay, Let's read his last part. We, now, in the first part, you might be able to say it's one or the other. Or maybe you could say it's both, because as a result of Adam's sin, didn't both kind of death enter the world? Didn't physical death enter the world? Because, of, I mean, if he hadn't sinned, he wouldn't have been kicked out of the garden, right? And that physical death would not have entered the world, right? And spiritual death, uh, being separated from God in relation to him because of sin, that would not have entered the world without Adam sinning either. He wouldn't be ashamed of God, he wouldn't have hid from God, he wouldn't have tried to put clothing on himself, because he wouldn't have known those things yet, right? Okay? But the, the last part of this, I think, defines what kind of death we're talking about. And thus, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, does your personal sin bring about your physical death or your spiritual death? That's right. Aren't you, go I mean, we all believe here that babies aren't sinners, right? We all believe that uh, people who don't come to the age of understanding, so I don't have to prove these things to you. I mean, we can talk about it at a different point in time, but we all believe that, that people who don't come to the age of understanding or accountability or state of accountability, that they're not sinners in God's eyes, right? Why do they die physically if they haven't sinned in God's eyes? That's right. And so you see why we have to come to these conclusions about death from the context. Okay, was Jesus Christ a sinner? Did he die? Yeah. So this can't be talking about physical death here. If your personal sin is the cause of your physical death, now babies are sinners, toddlers are sinners, mentally handicapped people are sinners, and Jesus was a sinner. That's a big problem, isn't it? You see, we use the whole council of Scripture to, to. Define what death means here in this passage. Okay? And once again, the, the words being used here, whether it's thonatos or the other Greek word that I mentioned, uh, apothnesko, apothnesko, that's, uh, with, no matter which word is being used here in each of these examples of death, and I think it's uh, actually thanatos every time, each word can mean either way. And so the context will determine what kind of death we're talking about here. Okay? So death spread to all men because all sinned. All followed in Adam's footstep. All sinned at some point in time. Okay? That's why they die spiritually. Now, people who babies who die, take a born babies, for example. They die. They have not committed any sin. But the reason they die physically is because of what Adam did back in the garden. Okay, and we'll get to 1 Corinthians 15 here in a second. Okay, let's go on to verse 13. For until the law. And we'll see what kind of law we're talking about here in a second. Until law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. So sin is not accounted against somebody when there is no law. If I went through a stop sign, but there was no law about breaking going through a stop sign, I couldn't be given a ticket for it. I couldn't be arrested for it. If there was no speed limit on Highway uh, 80, Cumberland Parkway, I said 55 miles per hour, I can go as fast as I want. I couldn't get a ticket for it unless there was some kind of sign somewhere else. right? And so there has to be a ticket for it. You have the... What's that one called in Europe? Autobahn? I don't think there's a speed limit on that. Yeah, so you can go as fast as you want. No tickets. No law being broken. Okay? So that's what it's saying here. Sin is not accounted to you when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So what law are we talking about here? From Adam to Moses, death reigns. So the law came when? At Moses. Right? Because we're talking about from Adam to Moses now. So the law of Moses, until the law of Moses came into the world, the things the law of Moses talks about, like the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, the dietary laws, the clothing laws, Paul's talking to Jews and Gentiles and Romans, okay? Those people were not accountable for breaking those things until the law came. Then why did death reign from Adam to Moses still? The spiritual death we're talking about here. Why did it reign from Adam to Moses if there was no law? Because there's still the law of the conscience that we see talked about in Romans 2.15. And so they all know that, for example, Cain and Abel. Did Cain know that murdering Abel was wrong? Yes, he did. And when, when God declared in Genesis 6 that every intent of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually, did they know they were doing wrong? Yeah, they knew they were doing wrong, otherwise God wouldn't be just in destroying them all. And so there is a, there is a knowledge of right and wrong, a basic knowledge that every person has. So we talk about this in the opening all the time. People say, well, what about the man in the middle of Africa who's never heard of Jesus, never heard of the Bible? Well, he still has a conscience. He still has the law of God written upon his heart, the moral law of God. And so they were, that's why death was still reigning during that time from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now what does that mean? What kind of transgression did Adam have?
1: Transgression walking with God, speaking directly God, a direct relationship with God that
0: had yet. Okay. Well there were people from Adam to Moses who had that kind of, I mean Enoch, he walked with God and he was no more. Okay. Noah was perfect, right? And so we see even Job, he was before Moses' time and he was he was blameless and righteous, so he walked with God. But the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now what kind of transgression did he commit? Disobedience. Disobedience in what way? What did he disobey? A direct command from God, right? Didn't God come to Adam and say, You should not eat from that tree? And uh, we we see um the next time that God gives commandments in that sense is in Moses' time where he writes with his own finger on tablets of stone, right? And he gives Moses the law directly face-to-face. But from Adam to Moses, we don't see that happening. But men still have the law of God written upon their hearts, and still have a conscience. But even though they didn't sin the same way Adam sinned, debt still reigned. because they were still breaking a law within their members that Romans 2.15 talks about. I'll just read it for you real quick. Um the Gentiles who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing them or else excusing them. Okay? It says in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, same thing he's talking about in Romans 5, don't have the law by nature due to things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. By nature, they do the law. Yeah, by nature they do the law, because they have a nature that includes their conscience, which was given to them by God at birth. Okay, so that, that is actually talking about a born-with nature there, in the definition of fuses there. We talked about that recently. But going back to this, the, this, the people before Moses' time were in the same position the Gentiles were in that Paul is talking about in Romans 2. They didn't have the written-down law of God, but they had the law of God written upon their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Okay? So this death still reigned because they were still sinning. Not in the same way Adam did, but they still sinned, okay? But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And so we see here a comparison of death as a result of Adam's sin and grace as a result of what Christ did. Now, this doesn't mean... It says, for by one man's offense, many died. It doesn't say in what manner or in what mode the Adam's sin affected the death of other people. Uh, it simply could be like an influence. You know, if, if I were to become a drunkard and my son were to see that, it might influence him to become a drunkard. If I lie or I yell or I'm angry a lot, it might influence my son to do the same thing. So we can't read into this that it said that uh, because the one man's offense many died. We can't read into that that we're born a sinner with a sinful nature, but that's what people read into that a lot of times. Here's the problem they're going to have with that. It says many, Does they say all? But people who believe we're born sinner with a sinful nature, they'll say that we're all born that way, not just many of us, but we're all born that way. But this says many here. And then it says the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now if it means all in the first part of verse 15, doesn't it have to mean all in the second part of verse 15? If many, many, doesn't mean many, it actually means all. then It has to mean all in both instances. So if that's true, then we're all saved now. Because the grace has abounded to all people through Jesus Christ. And if that's true, we have something called universalism. No one will be in hell. And is that true, according to Scripture? I guess we have to interpret Scripture as Scripture here. Remember, some of the things that Paul says is hard to understand. So this one uh, offense, many died. And so maybe that's talking about the direct influence of Adam upon the people that he knew during his to- the period he lived. I mean, he lived to be 935 years old, or 930, whatever it was. That's a long time. I mean, you, you live to be a hundred years old, you can have a direct influence on a lot of people. Adam lived to be nine hundred and something years old. A lot of time. Just like the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, would have direct influence on many people as well. Causing them to follow him and have salvation. The same way Adam's sin would cause, have a direct influence on other people and cause them to follow in his footsteps and have spiritual death in their life. Okay? Verse 16. Now we're going to see here in verse 16 that the translators are doing a lot of filling in the blanks, so to speak. Okay? If you look in your your Bible, you see a lot of words in italics there. Okay? I am not going to read the words in italics. Because I want to get what the actual Greek text says here, not what the translator is saying it says. Because we know, I think just about every translator ever has been, for the English Bible, has believed in original sin and sinful nature. So sometimes there's going to be a bias there. So I'm going to read just the words that are not in italics in verse 16. And the gift not like through the one who sinned, for the judgment from one in condemnation, but the free gift from many offenses in justification. And so we see here that the, the gift and the, um, the, the sin were not the same thing. Okay, it took one sin, which brought judgment, resulting in condemnation. Okay, condemnation for who? Who did Adam's sin result in condemnation for? Himself, himself, and himself alone. Results in condemnation for him. But the free gift can result in justification for as many as you'll believe, according to the scriptures, right? As many as who will believe. And so when we read the scripture, it says, and a gift not like the one which who sinned, for the judgment from one in condemnation. So it took like one sin to bring forth condemnation. But the free gift uh, can result in justification, even though there's many offenses now, many sins now. It can still overcome those things and result in justification. Just like we talked about in verses six through eleven. Even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. And it can result in justification and salvation for us. Okay, so let's look at verse 17. Well, I don't know why mine's really different than yours, but it says, mine says, a free gift from many
1: offenses in justification.
0: Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I said. But a free gift from many offenses in justification. So there's many offenses. But the free gift can overcome all those offenses and result in justification for the sinner. Okay, Even though it only took one sin to result in condemnation and judgment. Whether it's Adam or whether it's you. One sin is all it takes for you to have condemnation and judgment. Okay, But the free gift is different than that. It can overcome all those things. And so we have in verse 16 condemnation being compared to justification. We have in verse 15 death being compared to grace. Verse 17. For by one man's offense death reigned, through the one. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Here's another another verse that can help us define what kind of death is being talked about here. What kind of life does someone get when they come to Christ, or what kind of life does someone get through Jesus Christ? So it's not physical life, is it? So when someone receives the gift of righteousness and they get it through Jesus Christ, the kind of life they reign in is not temporary or physical life, right? It's eternal or spiritual life, right? That's what kind of life you get from them. And comparing that with the death we see in verse 17 that reigned, it was spiritual death that reigned, okay? And eventually eternal death will reign for those who don't repent and who don't trust in Christ, Okay? And so I think verse 17 can help us, just like verse 12, can help us understand what kind of death is talking about here and what kind of life we're talking about. So we have in verse 17, death being compared to life. So death reigned through sin. But life can reign through what Christ did. And he's, once again, he's comparing those two things, what happened. Verse 18. Once again, I'm not going to read the words that are in italics. Therefore, as through one man's offense, came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act to all men, resulting in justification of life. You notice I left out, judgment came to all men, because judgment's not in the Greek. That's something that the translator put in there. So what came to all men? The offense of Adam. It was presented before all men. We all have the effects of Adam's sin now, and we have the same opportunity he has, because he brought sin into the world, as uh, verse twelve says, and people followed his footsteps, making the world more and more and more sinful, until eventually, in, in Genesis chapter six, what did God do with the whole world? He destroyed it, and said, "Game over. We're going to start over again." Okay, and and eventually he's going to do that again, as in the days of Noah shall it be in the last days. Okay, so eventually it'll get just as bad as it was in Noah's day, and uh, he's going to put an end to it a- again. And so the the offense came, to, not, not judgment came to all men, the offense. Adam's sin was presented before all men and resulted in their condemnation because they followed in his footsteps. Even so, through one man's righteous act to all men, which is presented before all men, resulting in justification of life. So how many men did Christ die for? Yeah, I think that's another good proof text in verse 18 to show that limited atonement that Calvinists tried to promote is wrong. I mean, if they're gonna say verse 18 is saying that, that the offense was presented, I mean, they'll say, obviously they'll say what the italics verse says, judgment came to all men. They'll say we all are judged for Adam's sin, which the verse does not say. But then they won't take the last part of it saying that we're caused to be justified, all of us. Okay? So they're not being consistent in their interpretation of these, of these, these words. So verse 18, the offense came to all men, and then the righteous act, is presented to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now we see resulting in condemnation and resulting in justification of life. Now, is resulting in justification of life, is that conditional upon the sinner doing something? Doesn't God require you to do something to have justification of life? So wouldn't it then, resulting in condemnation, wouldn't that require you to do something as well? Yeah, see, if the first part requires you to do nothing, you're born a sinner with a sinful nature because of Adam, you're 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 condemned because of that. Then the last part will require you nothing either, and all of us are saved again. And now, once again, we have universalism, which no Calvinist in their their right mind would accept. That they wouldn't accept universalism. They know from the scripture that most people are going to hell. Okay, and so using proper hermeneutics, we say it's it's being presented, resulting in condemnation. It's being presented, just like salvation is being presented. And it will result in justification of life if they repent and trust in Christ. Just like it'll result in condemnation if we follow in Adam's footsteps. Do you see how that works? Okay. Well, the word world isn't there in verse eighteen. It says to all men. So if they're saying verse eight the top the beginning of verse eighteen came to all men and resulting in condemnation talking about original sin, sinful nature, they must then apply the same hermeneutic principle to the second part of verse 18, which means justification coming to all men. Not everybody's saved again. Everybody was forced to be a sinner through Adam's sin. Everyone's forced to be a saint now through Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' free gift. But we know that's not true, so we have to interpret it properly. So if the last part of the verse is conditional, the first part of the verse must be conditional. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now, what happens in this verse, the word many, you see twice here, were made sinners, many will be made righteous. The first part, people would like to train to change it to all. Because they believe original sin and sinful nature applies to all people. So they say all, many there really means all people made sinners. Well, if we do that with the first part, the first many have to do with the second many. And if many if all are made sinners, then all are what? Made righteous. Now we have universal. This is why in Finney's time, a lot of Calvinists, he was really coming as Calvin, a lot of them were becoming universalists. Because they were taking their interpretation of Romans 5 and, and being consistent with their interpretation of it. Okay? But what does it mean to be made a sinner or be made righteous? Well, when you're made righteous by Jesus Christ's obedience to his death on the cross, doesn't it require you to do something to be made righteous? What does it require you to do? To surrender to him, right? Surrender to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. That's how you're made righteous. Not as if God forces it upon you. Okay? And if that's true about the second half of verse 19, it must be true about the first half of verse 19. That The way we're made sinners is by following in Adam's footsteps. By doing the same thing he did. Okay? Well, the people will read into is that the made there is that it's forced upon us. But it's forced upon us. It's forced upon uh, being made righteous as well. Okay? So you see how using proper hermeneutics can help you understand what Romans 5, 12 through 19 is talking about. Let's read the last couple of verses here. Moreover, the law of Moses, once again, talking about the law of Moses, was talking about in verse 13 and verse 14, entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God wants us to sin more and more? And what it means is more knowledge came, which means what? More accountability, which means more sin and more guilt. And so God, when God brought the law and and the law of Moses and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus, he was bringing it to bring the knowledge of sin. Because remember in verse 13, where there is no law, there is no sin imputed. Unless you know about something, it can't be accounted to you as sin. You must know it's wrong. So God brought that in to show them they're sinning more and more. Not to make them sin more and more, but to show them that they are sinners. That they are. So they understand that. But it says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So we're going to have sin abounding and grace abounding. Because grace can cover all sin. So that a sin reigned in death, Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have another verse, I think, that helps us understand what death we're talking about here. Because grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you have comparison to death here, to life. It's eternal life to death. And sin brings forth not physical death, but spiritual death. And eventually eternal death, the second death. As Revelation twenty talks about. Okay, let's go to one more passage here, First Corinthians fifteen, and we'll be we'll be done. Okay, so we have Romans 5, 12, 21, I think is referring to spiritual death. I think that we proved that from the context of so what kind of death is talking about there, and also by going back to Genesis, see what kind of death happened there. And then we have 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is talking about physical death by context. Verse uh, 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Right. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So it's talking about what kind of resurrection? Physical resurrection, right? Verse 21. For since by man came death, physical death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And we know it's talking about physical death there, not because of the word, because the word can mean either, but because of the context, because Christ rose physically from the dead. Okay, For as in Adam all die physically, even so in Christ, those who are in Christ, all shall be made alive. And so if you're in Christ, you'll be physically resurrected from the dead. Now, obviously, the sinners will be resurrected from the dead as well, but that's not I don't think that's what it's referring to here in context. In Christ, Are sinners in Christ? No, so there's not talking about them here. Be each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruit, physically risen from the dead. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. So when are we risen from the dead physically? At his coming. coming. That's right, at his coming. Okay. So we see 1 Corinthians 15. Don't let people confuse you. They'll try to comport 1 Corinthians 15 with Romans 5. Not the same thing. Not talking about the same thing. But Romans 5 is often difficult to help people understand because people give the wrong definition of death to it and because they try to impose things upon it that are not there. Okay? So you really, if you want to try to explain Romans 5 to someone, you're going to have to really study it and review it over and over again and really get this down to help them understand these things. And if they're open to the truth, Personally, I think it's it's pretty simple to understand once you're open to the truth to, of these things. Okay, okay. So what we we learned today that that death can mean two different things. That, uh, no matter what word it is, we saw what happened at the fall of mankind. Free will wasn't lost. We weren't we weren't beginning to be born sinners at that point in time with a sinful nature. We don't see any of that within the the. Um, uh, the ramifications of their sin, the consequence of the sin. We'll see God saying anything like that. And we see that sin is still a choice, just like choosing to follow Christ as a choice. And Romans 5 is spiritual death. And 1 Corinthians 15 is physical death. Okay, so let's I'll stop there, and if you have questions and comments, let's let's go to it. <laughs> Well, I think I think what it's saying there is that uh, the cherubim had the sword in his hand. Let me see here. Well, it doesn't say that. I don't, I don't really know. It could be the flaming sword was in the cherubim's hand. It could be that the flaming sword was by itself in the air. I mean. I guess I would assume. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden in a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Interesting. By that,
1: it is saying that flaming sword just by itself
0: turning. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I if I look at the Greek, there could be a Granville Sharp rule there that. uh the flaming swords actually combined with the cherubim i can look at that but i don't really know at this point in time interesting concept though theory i don't know if cherubim have the ability to slack
1: yeah,
0: yeah he did but they'd have to become a rebel they'd be a fallen angel then if that happened because angels are perfect that's, that's another creature that has free will, still. You know. I, I still believe there's angels out there who could decide to follow Satan if they wanted to. Now, if so they had free will to begin with, well, a third of them wouldn't have followed him. You know, but a third of them, a two-thirds of them, up to this day, to my understanding of the scripture, have continued to perfectly follow God from the beginning. Perfectly. They've never sinned. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it gives us more, more uh, input into what the tree of life is like in Revelation that it doesn't give us in Genesis. It doesn't say us what, kind of, what kind of tree it was or what kind of fruit it bore, but assuming those are the same exact tree, which I think is a, a right assumption to make at this point, unless we can see something otherwise, it's interesting. It's it's probably not. a... I mean, obviously, there's no tree that bears twelve different kinds of fruits right now. So, um, it's not it's not sim, it's not uh, representing any other tree that's around. And who knows? Those twelve kinds of fruits could be the kind of fruit we have now, or it could be twelve different fruits that we've never even tasted before. You know, we always see the picture of a garden even with Adam eating an apple. Well, I don't think that's true. I mean, it's possible that if one of the fruits that comes from the tree is an apple, that they did eat an apple. That's possible. I don't think it's probable though. Uh, I, I would guess that it's probably twelve fruits we have never eaten before. But there must have been a fig tree somewhere nearby, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be able to sew figs for their, their skirts. Their, their girdle coverings. So. Um, going
1: back to the, to the garden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's this that, 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 that his power that kicked them out of his realm and down to the earth. So, couldn't uh, a skeptic or a Calvin say, Well, look, God threw them down there knowing they would tempt and Eve, mm-hmm. thus causing the fall, thus causing us all the sin, through the temptations that are here. not am not, not, not hours. Right. about from nature now, but about the sin being here.
0: No, God's not responsible for the devil's sin. The devil chose to sin by himself, so to a third of an angel's. Um, God is responsible for allowing Satan to come into the garden. He allowed it. But in that sense, God a, if you're going to say God's responsible by allowing something, then God's responsible for everything. God has to allow everything, allow or cause everything. So I think every every comes to free will choices, God's allowing those things. There are some things that he does cause to happen, but he's allowing things to happen. <clears throat> so God does allow, he did allow it to happen. And uh, I don't think God wanted them to fail, even though he knew they were going to fail. He wanted them to succeed. You know, that was his desire for them. And um, as First Corinthians 10, 13 says, there's no temptation that's overtaken you, except such as is coming to man. And if that's true about us, with all the temptation we have in the world now, it surely was true about Adam and Eve, who had one temptation. That's it, just one. So, but it's a great picture of free will. I mean, so is the account with Cain and Abel. I mean, Cain didn't have to do that. It's like Adam and Eve didn't have to do that. But I think the world we're living in right now, the world that God created is, is the, the best possible world we could live in where the free will exists. Yeah. If there was a better world we could have lived in where free will exists, which is required to have genuine true love, God would have created it. And so this is the best possible world there is where free will and genuine love can exist. God didn't want robots. God wanted, obviously wanted creatures that could genuinely love him back. And so that requires free will. And uh, this is the best kind of world it could have been. And so I don't know if there, there could possibly be a world where every single person would have chosen every single time to live holy. Because the world exists because people have to have choice. Have genuine love. So, yeah. Um,
1: Now, the tree of life, when Mother John said they would um, come back down, now when they were in the garden, God gave them the the ability to eat from every tree. Now, with them eating from that tree, wasn't that already giving them eternal life right there? So, would they have to
0: continue to eat from the tree? The tree of life? Yeah, the, the question is whether they actually ever ate from it. And, you know, I've, I've pondered that a lot. If you look in Genesis 3, in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So maybe at that point in time, he hadn't eaten it from it yet. You know? But if we're going to say he had eaten eaten from it at that, that point in time then we would have to say that physical life was conditional upon his continual eating of the tree of life, which I don't think I agree with that. Uh, that's a possibility, I guess. But I think once he died, it was necessary to eat of it to live physically forever. So um, maybe they hadn't eaten from it yet. Maybe they had. Either way, they weren't dying physically yet, so... Anyway, that's my uh, my thoughts on it. But a lot of us, you know, are reasoning from silence, so we don't really have the facts for it. I can just give you what I think. Okay, anybody else?